Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We educate, we connect, we care. We're In Social Work. Hello. I'm Charles Sims, your host for this episode of In Social Work. The literature on the use of telemental health is more than 50 years old, yet its integration into clinical social work practice has been described as slow. However, the changing age demographic of the workforce and of those people receiving clinical services will almost assuredly quicken the pace of technological integration. Increasingly, Those coming into the field and through agency doors have grown up with various forms of technology and are not only comfortable with its use, they will expect their presence. As such, social work will have to accelerate its movement towards determining ways to effectively and ethically utilize evolving technologies. Our guest is in the forefront of that effort. Nancy Rogett has a master's degree and is a marriage and family therapist as well as a licensed alcohol and drug counselor. She is the current executive director of the Center for the Application of Substance Abuse Technologies at the University of Nevada, Reno. Since 1993, the center has been providing training and technical assistance for substance abuse prevention, treatment, and recovery. Recently, it was awarded the National Frontier and Rural Addiction Technology Transfer Grant, which focuses on telehealth technologies. Ms. Rogett's many accomplishments include the development of an online minor in addiction counseling and prevention services. She has also previously directed community-based substance abuse treatment programs for adolescents and their family members, and she has written training manuals and peer-reviewed journal articles. Ms. Rogett has devoted her entire 36-year professional career to the substance abuse treatment profession, working as a counselor, treatment coordinator, executive director, trainer, lecturer, project manager, and principal investigator. In this podcast, Ms. Rogett talks about why she believes the adoption of technology in clinical social work has been slow. Using as examples, applications being developed to address the treatment and recovery needs of substance-involved individuals, see illustrates how technology can be incorporated into clinical social work. Ms. Rogett also explores the use of technology for clinical supervision. She offers her thoughts about important ethical considerations, as well as providing practical suggestions about what needs to be considered by practicing professionals and agency leaders. The interview with Ms. Rogett, which took place in December 2015, was conducted by Charles Sims, a clinical associate professor in the School of Social Work, University at Buffalo. This is Charles Sims, and I'm with Nancy Rogett of the NFARATTC, and we're having a conversation this afternoon on technology in social work and in addictions. So, Nancy, I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about the mission generally of the ATTCs and more specifically about the mission and work of your organization. 
Sure, I'd be happy to. The addiction technology transfer centers are SAMHSA-funded entities, and they are located in all 10 regions across the United States. And so they're aligned with the HHS region. So there's 10 regional addiction technology transfer centers across the United States, and they're located at universities and private entities. And they provide training and workforce development activities for the specialty addiction treatment staff as well as other allied health professionals, including social workers. So the purpose of the ATTCs is to develop and strengthen the workforce that provides addiction treatment and recovery support services to those folks in need. So there's 10 regional centers, and then there's also, Charles, four national focus areas, and our ATTC is one of the four national focus areas. There's the National Hispanic and Latino ATTC, which is located in Puerto Rico. There's the National Screening and Brief Intervention Referral to Treatment ATTC, which is located in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And then there's the National American Indian Alaska Native ATTC, which is located at the University of Iowa. And we're the National Frontier and Rural ATTC, and we're located at the University of Nevada, Reno. One of our key goals for as the National Frontier and Rural ATTC is to serve as the national subject expert and key resource to promote the awareness and implementation of telehealth technologies by addiction professionals and by social workers, marriage and family therapists, school counselors, so sort of the whole behavioral health spec providers. Okay. And can you say a little bit more about why should health providers be interested in telehealth technologies, particularly when it comes, when we start thinking about the um, treatment of addictions as well as recovery services? Sure. What's fascinating for us is that the literature really on telemental health services is really over 50 years old. And so we kind of think about it as a new phenomenon and actually think back in the late 1950s in Nebraska at a mental health institute, they were using closed-circuit television to provide group counseling, so way back then. And if you look at the amount of research that's available on using different types of technology to deliver mental health services, it's really huge. And in fact, a recent, I'd say it was done two years ago, a group did a systematic review of all the literature, on all the research on using telehealth technologies to deliver mental health services. And there, I think they found like over 800 articles that had substantial research. The research was pretty strong. And basically they showed that customers liked using video conferencing. I'll talk about that in a minute. And that there was really no difference between the treatment outcomes. When we look at the addiction treatment field, there's very few published studies on the use of telehealth technologies to enhance substance abuse treatment services, and especially along the lines of video conferencing. And I can talk a little bit more about that in a minute, but I think when we start to look at why should we 
be interested in using technology to deliver services. I think we just have to look around and one, people are using technology and two, especially in the addiction treatment field, the majority of people with substance use disorders have not entered treatment and in fact it's like 95% of the people with substance use disorders are not in treatment. And so we need to look at expanding access as well as enhancing our treatment services. Are there telehealth technologies that are available for the more recovery-oriented side of the equation? Yes. And so let me answer that in a little different way, and then I'll go back to it. So there, in the addiction treatment and recovery world, there's five current studies about using video conferencing to deliver treatment services. But where the majority of the research on providing addiction treatment services using technology is about using web-based programs or mobile health. And there's a ton of studies uh, regarding that. I can talk about two of them in particular. Now, to answer your question about recovery support technologies, our ATTC is doing a new workshop on recovery support technologies. But what we're starting to see out there is there is some literature support for using different types of technologies to provide recovery support. And I can give you two great examples. One is um, a research group out of the University of Wisconsin, uh, Dave Gustafson and his group have taken Android phones and have developed uh, different programs on these Android phones, and their program is called HS. And treatment providers could purchase this particular technology from them. But basically what they do is they give clients uh, phones and they program in specifics about clients. So they have programmed into these phones like reasons why this person is in recovery, like maybe pictures of their family members or their kids. They program in their high-risk areas. And so so when the GPS is uh, on on the phone and they get close to one of their high-risk areas, the phone will go off and say, what are you doing? Do you need to call your sponsor? It's got their sponsor's name in there. It's got supportive people's names and phone numbers. And uh, they've done some pretty extensive research and have found that these phones are very helpful either as part of treatment services or so an adjunct to treatment services, or they're used as the aftercare component for recovery support. The other uh, thing that we're seeing is a group out of um, a treatment center, Heartview, in North Dakota. And you can imagine that's a pretty rural and remote area. And they developed, they took a social media platform. I believe they use, I think it's NG. And they developed a closed social media site for their clients. And the clients then can log in, connect with each other, go to online support groups, contact their counselor, you know, email a colleague or a fellow client at like 2 in the morning and say, you know, I need some help 
and it really expands like access and support or they also have downloaded like stories to read about how their people have got through cravings and things like that. And Erin with Stanley is a NIDA researcher and she's researching the clients that are involved in this closed social media platform. It's web-based. The people that participate have better outcomes, so are staying clean and sober longer after initial treatment. And that's just really two examples of how different technologies are being used for recovery support. And we know that Hazleton is using a program called uh, My Ongoing Recovery and they got some initial good results with that. It was more of a web-based program rather than a a mobile phone-based program or an app. I think it's now an app. So there's some really exciting things going on out there. Yeah, it was very interesting hearing the difference between the two. You know, one seemed to be much more of a a social media kind of platform, and another one seemed to be more proprietary, but they both look at the same kinds of things around providing treatment and supporting recovery. But there's another piece of the whole treatment continuum, and that's this idea of supervision. And I know that you all have been involved in that, uh, looking at um, is there a way to bring supervision into the realm of technology? And I'm wondering what may have prompted that for you all. Well, in our role as the National Frontier and Rural ATTC, we're you know looking at ways that we can help train the workforce and enhance the skills of the workforce, especially those who are in rural and remote areas. We also know specifically in the addiction treatment field that we have an aging out of uh, folks, so our workforce is getting older. We're worried about providing training and supervision to a new workforce and who's going to do that. And so we started looking at the literature regarding technology-based clinical supervision. And we found, you know, the literature on technology-based clinical supervision is somewhat limited, although everybody thinks it's a great idea and it's the best way to train the next generation of counselors and social workers and psychologists. The issue is is that when we start looking at technology-based clinical supervision, we found some studies, but they were mostly graduate school-based, and so they weren't out in the field as much. We are starting to see more literature come out about the effectiveness of technology-based clinical supervision, and we put together a training on technology-based clinical supervision, and the point of it is really not to teach people clinical supervision like they should already know that, but how to be more comfortable with uh, technology, how to deal with some of the issues regarding technology, and what's the best and safest way regarding privacy and security issues to deliver technology-based clinical supervision. And we always have people who go, well, it's not as good but as face-to-face. But there's a great quote that I want to read you that is from one of the technology-based clinical supervision researchers. He's um, up in Alaska. And let me read you this quote. I just think it's great. He said, the traditional methods of supervision 
are in wide use because they were the only methods available, not because research determined them to be the most effective. Making the assumption that the old methods are the best may do the field a disservice by blinding us to new opportunities and alienating a younger generation of supervisees who identify with technology being integrated into every part of their life. Wow. That's profound, particularly when you think about it, when we think that there's been this growth in telehealth and and growing telebehavioral health, it would seem natural that you would see this kind of movement towards uh, supervision. Combined with, you know, I've talked to people who were in rural communities who who are looking to enhance their counseling styles or their counseling or intervention techniques, but don't have people around them who can do that. So we've had this growth of technology and education. So the natural progression is, okay, so we move past the, you know, people get the training. So how do we assume or how do we help them get better or to more fully develop their skills, obviously through supervision. So this seems to be a natural part of that progression. Well, I think you make a great point. I think our colleges and our universities certainly have expanded their openness towards online learning. And because certainly 10, 15 years ago, people are going, oh, no, it's not as good, can't be done, can't do this, can't do that. And now we see online MSW programs, we see online counseling programs, we see Uh, many undergraduate and certainly graduate courses that are taught in person also have an online component. And so we see hybrid classes classes or courses all over the place. And so I think your point's great. Now, how do we move that into looking at clinical supervision and have the same kind of acceptance going on that we're seeing in online teaching and instruction? Yeah, and I've taught a number of online courses, so I've kind of had an opportunity to think through this idea of, you know, how do you provide that and, you know, is online different or substantially or less than, which is always, people are always saying it's less than. Well, is it? Are there things that the online environment may provide that you can't do in a, in a seated course? Addiction people, you know, our, our field particularly, the addiction field has treatment field has somewhat lagged behind in their use of technology in, in their work. I'm wondering if in your travels have you discovered the same thing and have you developed any thoughts about why that might be? You know, I have found that when we first started doing some of our trainings at uh, addiction conferences, we'd have like two people show up. It's kind of like holding a workshop on the topic of, let's say, HIV, AIDS, or LGBTQ, and the only people that show up are people who are interested in that topic and not people who need to have more information about it. And so one of the ways that we found to get people more interested in it is to start talking about the new ethical dilemmas that people in the field are starting to face because of technology and social media. And so we're starting to get more interest with folks from that perspective, and it doesn't seem as worrisome or challenging as much. The other thing that we're seeing is because we have a lot of people in the addiction treatment field who 
are, I'd say, well over the age of 50, probably closer to 60 and above, kind of fall in this category of a digital immigrant. And that was a term that was actually coined by a guy named Prinsky way back like in 2001. But it really talks about there's a difference between digital immigrants and digital natives. And, you know, digital immigrants, according to his definition, there's many different definitions, but he bases it on age, is that uh, people who were born before 1964 and then people who were born after that were born, had access to computers and cell phones where the rest of us, because I'm one of those digital immigrants, you know, we were born in the pre-computer stage. I mean, I was excited to have a IBM Selectric typewriter at my cute program. I don't know if you remember those days or we were excited when we got our first copy machine. Very well. Yes. And so I think that's part of the problem is that this whole thing of digital immigrants and not being comfortable with technology may be some of the source of resistance. But, you know, once we start to frame things for folks, you know, like just because we're not comfortable with it doesn't mean that we don't need to understand what role it plays in our clients' lives or our patients' lives. And there's a great quote by Myers that I want to read you, and it says, since patients are likely to use social network sites or technology, it may be helpful to practitioners to understand the phenomenon of social network sites and technology, even if they don't participate themselves. So what role does it play for our clients? Why is it important? And we certainly wouldn't use the excuse of, well, you know, my patient is into this particular activity and I don't agree with it and so I'm not going to understand it. And I think as counselors and social workers, we've got to understand what's important to our patients, even if we don't participate. So I think that's part of the issue. And I think as we push people a little bit to look at where they get stuck and why it's important to their patients, I think we'll see them start to move a little bit differently. Okay. I sometimes wonder also, kind of following that, if the payers also have a role here to be in much more understanding of the need to upgrade and update how we meet with and uh, connect with our clients. And the traditional ways, given that many of our clients are young, are no longer appropriate. We have to have the skill and the technology hardware, for lack of a better term. Yes, I agree with you. I think part of the issue that we see is that we see either people being very resistant towards using any kind of technology, or we see people who jump in there and go to the other extreme and start using technology without thinking about the privacy security issues or about how it may put them at risk. I think we're starting to see many of the national associations are starting to write guidelines or regulations regarding and providing some guidance. And I don't know if you've seen this yet, but you probably have uh, NASW just put out eight tips for their professionals regarding uh, social media and clients. I don't know if you've seen those. 
No, I've not seen it yet, but I will shortly. I can guarantee you. There's a, another piece here, and, and that is, you know, we've talked a lot about the idea and the process and the thinking about why this is important in uh, some areas that we might want to think about why that's important. But I wonder if you could spend a few minutes just talking about what are some of the technologies that might be utilized and offer some ideas about some of your concerns as well as the benefits thereof. Sure. So the research is just starting to come out and is starting to demonstrate some technologies that providers can purchase. And this is in the addiction treatment arena. So Lisa Marsh and her folks from Dartmouth College have developed and have run through clinical trials a web-based, now it's web-based, it used to be computer-based, but a web-based intervention treatment program called TESS, Therapeutic Education Systems. They have tested uh, TESS, that's hard to say, in various settings. So they've tested it in prisons, so it's replaced some treatment, okay? So it's in lieu of, I don't know how many sessions. So they've tested it in prisons, they've tested it in methadone maintenance programs, and they've tested it in other kind of addiction treatment settings. And they have found it to be very effective. So for example, and uh, TESS is, has 65 different modules that a client or patient can run through on their own. And so the program would have like a computer that would have web access to tests. And so instead of sitting in group, um, let's say they're an intensive outpatient, instead of sitting in group, they would do work on this web-based program called TESS. And there's 65 different modules. They go through things like drug refuser skills and all of that, different types of educational things, and then they test the person's knowledge before they can go on to the next module. And what's interesting to me is, I don't know about you, Charles, but when you're doing drug treatment counseling, a lot of times you'll spend time with your client going over, well, let's practice you saying no. Who's going to be hard to tell them, no, you don't want to go out and get a beer, or no, you're not drinking anymore. And so you spend time with a client going through that. And if you talk to a lot of addiction counselors, they're like, oh, my God, if I have to go over that one more time. So if some of that time can be charged to the computer, it can free up the counselor's time to take care of people who are in crisis. And so uh, TESS is showing some very good outcomes. It's actually also been used in some clinical trials with Native Americans and with women, and so it's showing some efficacy there. And can people purchase it? Yes. Is it really commercialized at this point? No. It's a little harder to do, but it is available. And by the way, I get no kickback from Lisa Marsh and her group, just so you know. The other program that we're seeing that's getting a lot of use and has good efficacy is Kathy Carroll's group out of Yale, and that's uh, CBT for CBT. And this is a six-module web-based program that, once again, treatment providers can buy and they can have their clients run through and do these six modules. And there's uh, good results coming from those trials as well. 
and people can purchase that as well through Kathy Carroll's group. And once again, I get no money from them or anything like that. And I mention those two programs because they have the most literature support. And then the third one is HS that I've already talked about. So those three seem to have the most literature support available. We also see that there's different apps that are being studied right now, and certainly there's a researcher out of UCLA who has developed an app for teenagers or adolescents who are in drug and alcohol treatment, and they use this app to get support. The app sends them a text message like two or three times a day, like, how are you doing? Um, If they're not doing so well, then somebody will call them. And she's finding some really interesting results. So we're just going to see this just explode over the next couple of years. The problem's going to be, and you brought it up already, is how do programs use this and how do they get reimbursed for it? And HS, I know, is going through all the approvals right now to be considered and be approved as a medical device. And then once it's approved as a medical device, then patients and programs can purchase it and then be reimbursed for it. Most providers that we're seeing right now, though, are adding these different, like, apps and something like TESS or CBT for CBT, and they're doing it as a value added, meaning that it's part of their treatment service delivery or their recovery support services, and they build the cost of these new technologies into the services they're providing. I see. Okay. Again, following kind of my thinking, my natural progression kind of thinking. So as we move into clinical supervision, are there platforms that are more appropriate? Are there, how do we think about those kind of platforms? You brought up earlier the idea of ethics and you began touching on that. So I'm wondering, are there, if I were an agency program director and I was starting to think about clinical supervision in addiction intervention or addiction treatment, how might I do that? What things might I need to start thinking about? Well, because we're federally funded, we have to be really careful about, we call it that we're vendor neutral. So we have to be really careful about recommending different vendors. But, and we always warn people that equipment is not HIPAA compliant. People have really gotten themselves sort of stuck, and we have too, and so we've really kind of changed our language around that, that we, you know, equipment is never HIPAA compliant. It's what the agency does to make sure that they're acting within all the HIPAA compliant regulations. And, you know, by doing a self-assessment and by having justifications of why they've chosen certain equipment and certain platforms. You know, one of the biggest things is when you're looking at a platform, you need to ask the vendor if they're willing to enter into a business agreement with you. And if they're not willing to enter into a business agreement, then that can help guide your decision. The things that we're recommending for clinical supervision is, one is that there's the old-fashioned telephone. Telephone has lots of privacy and security as long as you're not having the conversation doing clinical supervision like at Starbucks or something like that. We're also looking at people using polycoms, sort of like a 
bigger phone speaker type of thing. The other thing is that we're really cautioning folks to do two types of clinical supervision or suggesting that they do two types. One is to do live supervision using a video conferencing platform that they've selected and then doing live supervision so that the client and the counselor are doing a session with the clinical supervisor observing the session. And many of these video conferencing platforms also include like a chat function so that the clinical supervisor could chat the counselor if the session, you know, to go in a different direction or just say, hey, you missed this, watch out for this. And most of the video conferencing platforms that executive directors or administrators want to look at is you don't want anything recorded. That's the biggest no recording. The second thing, if you're not doing live supervision, is then to do like a group supervision using a platform, once again, that doesn't do any recording. And, you know, an example would be Zoom. Well, you know, a lot of people are using Zoom. Once again, no kickbacks for me. There's lots of other options out there. But you want to make sure that there's no backdoor or there's no recording going on so nothing is saved. And that, that helps to meet the HIPAA security and privacy issues. The main thing you want to avoid, which I thought would be like, oh, this would be the best way to do it, but it's really not. And that's when you record a session. Let's say I'm a counselor. I record a session with my client. I have my client's permission to do that. I record it. I upload it to my computer. It then goes to, it's held on my computer and then the server, wherever I have my email account, I email it to my supervisor, send it as an attachment or I upload it, and then my supervisor downloads it to their computer, so now it's on their server and their computer, and this recording now is in minimally four different places. And then that's where the you have more opportunity for a breach. So we're not recommending any kind of recording of a session and then uploading it and then sending it off to a supervisor to look at. So group supervision live or clinical supervision live where there's no recording. Those are our two recommendations right now. And as the technology improves, we're going to be able to see, you know, and, you know, right now it's just a little expensive for some providers, if they had a portal that was built for them that they could sign into and then upload the video that way for their supervisor to see because their supervisor has to log in and look at it, that might be safe too, but that gets a little more expensive and then it's still on your computer. And if your computer, like you're using a laptop, it gets stolen, then you have a breach. Yeah, I understand that concern. I think we need to start winding down. You know, we've kind of bounced around because what I'm finding, and I think the listening audience is also finding, is this is a very large topic that we haven't talked a lot about. So are there any closing thoughts that you would like to make? And my final thing to you is, 
perhaps you and I need to talk again on this topic because it is so broad and it is changing the face, I think, of how work is going to be done in the future. And I think we just haven't paid enough attention to it. Right. No, I agree with you. And I think, you know, the most important piece is that we have to look at technology and how it it works for us. We look at it as enhancing current services and expanding access because not everybody that is in treatment needs to be in treatment. So how can we use technology, whether we're in rural areas or we're in urban areas where people have to take three buses to get to their treatment program, you know, we still have the issue of people being able to access services. So how can we do that? And I found a great quote by Steve Jobs, and I think it really fits with what we're talking about. I'd like to read it to you. It says, technology is nothing. What's important is that you have faith in people, that they're basically good and smart, and if you give them tools, they'll do wonderful things with them. And I think that's a great place to end our conversation for today. Thank you for your time. And this has been, as I said, this has been illuminating to the point where it's making me think that we need to be doing more on this to help the field move in the direction that the rest of the world may be moving or dragging. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity, Charles. I really appreciate it. You have been listening to a discussion with Nancy Roget, exploring avenues for integrating technology into clinical social work settings. Please join us again to explore other topics of relevance to the social work profession at In Social Work. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our online and on-the-ground degree in continuing education programs, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. And while you're there, check out our Technology and Social Work Resource Center. You'll find it under the Community Resources menu.